Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. Episode 12, Playtesting RPGs. Recorded at Gen Con 2012 by Jason Pitr. Presented by Adam Kobol and Jason Pitr. This is intro to playtesting role-playing games. If you're looking for a Pathfinder game, well, not the right place. Just to uh, get started, can I get a show of hands? Who's currently designing a game and wanting to playtest their game? Okay. Who is wanting to playtest other people's games? Excellent. Is there anyone who has not lifted their hand on one of those two categories? <laughs> Excellent. Okay, great. That's about what I expected. So, I'll try to check out. Okay, so first thing is introductions. My name is Jason Pitt from Genesis of Legend Publishing. I'm currently working on one of my first major commercial releases. So I, but I've been testing this particular game for going on four to five years, on and off. Um, it's worked so dramatically over that span of time that it used to be American Gods, and now it's a world-building game about challenging your beliefs. So, lot, lots of change changes in uh, the playtesting process. The real. Uh, Publication credits go to my friend here, who will also be helping me out uh, in the seminar. Yeah, I'm uh, Adam Koble. I'm half of the design and development team for uh, Dungeon World. And uh, yeah, like like Jason, I've got a game that uh, we've just finished developing it. Went through a playtesting process. Um, we've done things a little bit differently, um, and I'll I'll explain some of the details a bit later. But uh, yeah, our playtest actually just is sort of finished now. Um, so I've got lots of fresh wounds from the process that I'm here to share with you. Uh, wounds are good. Playtesting pretty much comes down to killing your darlings and suffering the good kind of pain. So, yeah, fresh wounds are a sign that the full version of Dungeon World is going to be beautiful and in color. All right. So just to start things off, I want to start discussing the three general types of playtesting. Um, the way I envision it, there's no great book of playtesting that I can refer people to. Um, but for the most part, it tends to fall into three camps. Uh, three categories. The first one is concept testing. This is where you grab a bunch of your friends, sit around the table, and well, I've got this neat idea about a time-traveling RPG where we go back in time and every time we do that we age more. Okay, that, that's an interesting concept. What are you trying, what experience are you trying to give? And you sort of, it's almost a brainstorming, playstorming style uh, of playtesting. This is just concepts, noodling around, uh, maybe I want to use a couple d20s on here. Um, high numbers win. Uh, exploding dice. Okay, sure. We'll go with. We'll we'll try that out. Um, this is the easiest kind of playtesting you can do. Um, probably about 
60 to 70% of the games never leave this stage of playtesting. Um, but, uh, for instance, I'm playtesting one that is based on the scientific method, where it's going to be in the form of a journal article, photocopied, stapled, and all that. Uh, I have no idea if it will ever actually be produced, but uh, you know, I've chatted with the people, sat around a table, and it's like, so how would this work? Um, could we do something like this? So, yeah, just general conceptual playtesting. Anyone can do it. Um, having designers play in those is great because that's the level where designer baggage doesn't interfere. It actually helps. The next level uh, is probably the bulk of the playtesting that goes on, which is playtesting the system. So testing all the mechanics, the procedures, um, does the game itself function when you run it? That's the, that's the general uh, window where uh, you, you're trying to get uh, system uh, playtesting. Uh, this is fraught with difficulty in that uh, you, the only way you can get away with uh, system playtesting is through a lot of iterative testing with a wide variety of people. Um, because everyone has their own level of expectations, having a, uh, an experienced uh, story game designer playing your game will give you a radically different experience from uh, someone who's been running Hero System for the last 20 years, which is in turn a radically different experience from someone who's never picked up a role-playing game. Um, so it, that pretty much falls into a series of test, revise, test, revise, test, revise to hone the system to a point where you feel comfortable with how to run the game. And when it works out, everyone seems to be having a decent amount of fun uh, going about it. Um, we'll get back to this more in the, you know, how to run playtests and uh, portion of it, but that's the general outline of system. The third one is woefully neglected in most playtesting. This is playtesting the text, the presentation of the material. Um, is this a font that people can read? Is this a, an explanation on how the GM needs to function in this game if it's a GM game? Um, like, here's the advice and the procedures on how you set up conflicts, what is a conflict, what is something you just hand wave, uh, all the advice, the guidance, the kind of content that's usually missing, that has been missing in D&D &D for the first 15 years of its existence. All of that content... 40, right? Um, <laughs> I will only definitively say for the first 15. Yeah, it's, it's the how to play and making a game not just a reference text, which is important, but also a teaching text. The ideal situation being you pick up the book, you drop it in front of a non-role player, they can read it and learn to play it um, directly from the book without you teaching it to anyone in the, at that table. That is the gold standard. I think I know of 
about four games that I that meet that category at this point in time. Which four? Um, Fiasco, Microscope. I'd like to say Lady Blackbird, but I now that won't work for someone cold. Okay. Um, Lady Blackbird, no, no, you need it's people who have role played to play that one. Um, Penny for uh, Penny for your yeah Penny yeah uh, Penny for my thoughts yes uh, that's another one that would work and I know there must be a, another one well um, I'll just throw in Dungeon World in there for good measure although I haven't <laughs> seen the latest rever- version of the text but the the previous versions were pretty easy to start um, and well it's simplified character creation of look. Just print this off in circle numbers. It works fairly cleanly. Uh, last time I've seen, um, and that's the hope, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, that's the general concept of um, playtesting the uh, text. There's a lot of games that fall down on this, just because it's it is particularly hard because. The only way you can actually do it is to get people who have very little experience with the material and get them to play it. From a development standpoint, the the last testing phase can be one that's really easy to skip over, both because once you feel like you're done the mechanic playtesting, the mechanisms are complete, the game runs the way you expected it to, there's an inclination to to rush it to production. is to say, okay, well, it's done, the text was good enough for the playtesters, let's throw some art at it and be done. But... And also, too, there's a cost involved because laying out a, a book takes a long time, and if you're not doing it yourself, it involves paying someone to do that. And iterative testing of layout can be expensive if you're doing it over and over. Um, so one way that you can you can reduce sort of the amount of, of cost or time involved in that is um, through mock-up testing. So don't lay out the entire game. Just lay out certain portions of it and test the usability of those. Um, find the parts of the game that are most relevant to the layout, the areas with lots of tables or lots of instructive areas, and lay those out and do uh, experimental testing on them. Um, but it's it's a really important step and, and one that deserves a, as much attention as, as any other part of the playtest. Um, one thing to, to kind of keep in mind that throughout the entire process of testing a game, there's really two kinds of uh, playtest audiences that you're going to have. You're going to have internal playtest audiences and external. Um, some games, um, like Burning Wheel, for example, they do all of their playtesting internally. They don't go to the public. They don't have an open beta. They, they do all of it inside, and that's because uh, the audience that they're doing the playtesting with is a large enough sample size, and they understand the game already. They've been playtesting it for years. But for most games, especially new games, if it's the, the first game you're running, you're going to want to have a combination of both. And at different phases, you'll have different uh, mixes of that, that sort of audience. Um, in the, the concepting stage, generally, um, you know, like you said, it's, it's a very binary process. And it can often be as short as you know, one session. Like you get together with your normal group, you take a break on what you're playing, and you say, here's my idea. This is a game idea I've got in my head. And you can usually tell within a little while whether it's going to be worth pursuing or not. Um, now, this isn't always foolproof, obviously. There are some games that, at the get-go, sound like a really terrible idea. Like, if someone had pitched to me, just sight unseen, they said, I want to make a game, it's a horror game, but instead of dice, you use a Jenga tower to play it, I probably would have been like, that's ridiculous. 
it's going to be terrible. But if you ever play Dread, you, you find out it's actually quite a good idea. So the concepting stage is really the only place where you can kind of take the, the feedback and ignore some of it uh, in a lot of ways. Um, one really great tool for doing concept testing, too, if you're willing to go sort of outside your, your normal social circles, is uh, social media, right? If you, if you have some ideas about a game, there's lots of uh, places you can go on Twitter. There are Facebook groups you can join. Google Plus has proved to be really good for this. And you can get feedback of people who are experienced in the space already. Um, and again, I mean, there are going to be people who don't like the idea. doesn't mean it's bad. Um, at, at this point, there's not a lot of time or energy sunk into it. So, you know, you can kind of pursue it into the next step. Um, but that second phase, that middle chunk, is where all of the hard work is done on, on playtesting. Um, and this is where you figure out if you can turn that concept, that idea, into a, a proper game. Um, and often a game will go through, even within, and especially within the first part of development, it'll go through a, a dozen changes. You know, it'll use cards, then it'll use dice, and it'll go back to using cards again, then it'll use both, then it'll use neither. Sometimes it'll be GMless, And you can't be wedded to any one concept necessarily at the beginning um, when you're doing that sort of initial uh, launch testing of, of the mechanisms. Because you, you have to always be free to, to make those changes, to adapt the game in you know, big, exciting ways based on what you're, what you're getting from your audience. Um, one good example of this is uh, the general process I use for this is I try to create sort of the mission statement, this is the core purpose of the game. For instance, I've, the one I'm currently working on, uh, which I haven't plugged yet, uh, Spark RPG, open beta right now. Feel free to download it. Um, anyways, um, the, ver the game I'm working on right now, the core concept is challenge your beliefs. This means that I have to have the, the core mechanic core mechanics that do the function of challenging your beliefs, those things are fixed. Everything else can change. How I implement that can change, but the absolute minimal core of the game is the only thing that's untouchable. Um, uh, everything else, well, I mean... Kill Your Darlings is works for writers and it works for game designers alike. It's absolutely necessary, and it hurts like hell. Uh, it's incredibly painful to when you spend two years working on this, and this is going to be the great solution. It's the great innovation. It has solved all of my problems, and it's awkward, and it makes people feel... Um, it makes something feel uh, not fun when someone plays it. It gives the wrong emotional resonance in play. Well, damn it. <laughs> Delete. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's... Uh, general takeaway from that is find out what your game is about. Anything else that isn't about that core concept needs to be examined, and it might not survive. One thing that, that is sort of worth addressing, too, is, is getting playtesters, right? Like, it's, it's usually easy enough to, if you have a, a group of people you're already playing with, it's usually easy enough to corral them into playing a game once or twice. But you can't just use that group of people. So there, you'll get to a point where you have to expand. And 
Um, conventions are a really great place for that. I know that um, Gen Con has a space just for, for playtesting. Um, most people, if they're enthusiastic about gaming in general, they're willing to try a new game, even an unfinished game, at least once or twice. Um, there's something to be said for playing on that willingness to experiment, to uh, contribute to a, a new game. Because it's a great feeling to be able to look at a game on a shelf and be like, yeah, I remember when that was still you know, a 10-page PDF, and uh, you know, I got to work on it. You get to have your name in the credits or whatever. Um, but finding that audience, again, con is a great place. Social media, again, can be huge. Um, you know, at Dungeon World, we ran um, what we call our Adventurers Guild. Um, it's a group of playtesters that got all of their, um, they got all the material early, and we used them to, to playtest it. Um, and we met most of those people, first through uh, local conventions, and then through larger conventions like Gen Con, and then from there, just through spreading the, the word about the game uh, in social media. And you'll see generally two sort of uh, kinds of availability for playtest material. Um, there's the sort of approach that larger organizations will take, like um, like Wizards and, and Pelgrim, where you get assigned 100 NDAs and you you can't have the material unless you promise not to show it to anybody. And that only that approach only works if you know you have a huge audience. Like Wizards will never have trouble finding people to playtest D&D ever. It'll never be an issue for them. But most of us aren't Wizards of the Coast, so. Like for Dungeon World, for example, we you know we had the guild, but to join it, all you had to do was show interest in the game, was to prove that you weren't just looking to uh, to get the PDF and play it and not give us feedback, because feedback is the engine that drives playtesting. Um, so being able to be open about who can playtest your game, not being afraid to, to give away the unfinished game and let people try it, um, is really valuable, but you also have to give the people that are playtesting your game an engine for feedback is give them the ability to easily, uh, you know, give you information about the game because you'll get a core group of people. Like for us, we had maybe a dozen people who were constantly playing on the like playing the game on forums, talking about it. But we also had people who played it once, emailed us maybe once about it, and then it didn't really go anywhere from there. And the reason why uh, we were able to get that kind of feedback is again because we had uh, a public space for people to talk about it. We have a forum. Um, and we did all of our development of the game through um, a platform called GitHub, um, which is traditionally used for uh, developing software. Um, but we put all of the text into this system, and it's got a built-in uh, feedback tool where people can they can go, they can view the text of the game, they can play it, and they can offer specific feedback on sections of the game. Um, but now you don't have to go that necessarily that deep into it. Um, using things like uh, shared Google Docs, you can turn comments on. Um, you can have different versions for different people. Question, do you yeah. have to train any of your playtesters on how they give you feedback? Like, do you find different levels? No, generally, if you give if you give your audience uh, enough of a, a broad tool set, um, you know, for us, like the 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 sort of lowest level of feedback that we required was like read it, send us an email. Anybody can do that. And then the high level was yeah, you go on, you can hack the text yourself, and uh, and send us your version of Dungeon World or whatever. And then a bunch of stuff in between. You know, we did some periodic surveys to the playtesters. The idea is having a, a broad enough selection of tools that um, people can engage at whatever level they're comfortable with. Um, because, yeah, you, you're going to get lucky. You're going to have a handful of people who are going to get really involved. But most of the time, people will give you one or two pieces of, of sort of serious feedback about the game uh, on each iteration. Um, and... You know, to that level, like, iterative testing is huge. Uh, and this is true of, uh, you know, web development, it's true of software, and it's true of game design, too. Um, 
being able to test multiple versions of something. Um, we seeded the Adventurers Guild with three different versions of uh, Dungeon World early on, um, testing a few different kinds of mechanics. Um, we didn't let them know. We were just like, here's the current version. But they were actually all getting you know, version A, B, or C. And then we looked oh, at the feedback nice. and compared it. Um, and uh, in that kind of experimental sort of A, B, or, or iterative testing on uh, design can be really helpful. You know, and again, like the, you have to give it time. You have to decide what your development cycles are going to look like, how often you're releasing a new version, um, and, and how much feedback you need on any given version before you move on. Um, um, how many iterations ha- have you sent to the Adventurers Guild and the Kickstarter backers to date uh, since uh, your print publication last Gen Con? So in the last year, there have been um, four major versions, um, plus ongoing. The text is always available in whatever form. Right. Um, and again, this is going to depend. Like, Dungeon World had a fairly tight um, development schedule. You know, it's been, from inception to, uh, to publication, it's been about two years. Um, this is going to vary. Um, generally, I'm of the mind that you want to strike while the iron's hot. The longer you give a game to, to sort of percolate, the more it's going to change, and the more playtesting you're going to have to do. Um, you know, perfection is the, is the enemy of done, right? You'll never finish a game if you playtest it forever. Um, so having that willingness to say, all right, the game is, it's, this phase of the game is finished, lock in those changes and move on um, is one that, it's hard, but it, it's, it's really valuable if you ever want to be able to publish a game. Um, the, the other thing about the, the playtest materials, too, and, th- and this is one that I think a lot of people overlook, um, the game has to be, before it goes to outside playtest, it has to be available in at least some like, usable form. It doesn't have to be complete. It can be missing... Uh, you know, fiction, it can be missing some of the flavor, but the mechanisms have to be a complete system. They can be broken, they can be unfinished, but it has to be there. Because expecting your playtesters to fill in the gaps themselves uh, is going to reduce the quality and the quantity of the feedback that you get. Um, and a lot of that can be, uh, those gaps can be filled in by inside playtesting. You, know, you can use your, use your friends, use the people who already you, you worked up some of that social goodwill with, and uh, get them to help you fill in those, those spaces. Let, let's start with the discussion on how to run a playtest. Generally, uh, mechanics playtest. Oh, and if we haven't plugged it before, uh, Metatopia is the best convention for playtesting. It's in November of this year. I strongly recommend any anyone who has a game anywhere from concept to text, to refining the text, check out Metatopia. Um, it's actually intentionally built for designers. Where's that located? Uh, that is in uh, New Jersey, Morristown, New Jersey. Um, by the same people who do Dreamation and Dexcon. Second year of it, and it's... Uh, players get in for $20, designers get in for $50, because <laughs> the players are doing a service for the GMs and the designers. It's... It, flips the model, and it's apparently been amazing. I'm heading there this year. So. There are players up in room 238. Yep. I also have one here if anyone here. So, um, how to run a playtest. There's a wide variety of ways you can deal with playtests. The most common one is you, the designer, sit down in front of a table of random people, usually from conventions. Character sheets are made if you're testing the system. Character sheets are just 
blank if you were testing character creation, for instance. Go in and state your expectations. Either you may wish to say, I'm just wanting to test the mechanics generally. You may want to say, oh, I want to know how this bonds system works out in play. Can you, you know, really focus your efforts on poking at that? Communicating what you're looking for and your expectations, anywhere from the most broad of just what your, your first impressions down to this specific mechanic, how is your emotional reaction on this specific mechanic? Any of that is good. It all depends on what you're looking for in your specific design and where your problems came from, where you just made your last changes, that kind of thing. If you're playing with a group of people who you don't know or you've never played with them before, um, setting expectations for the session is really a big deal. Um, asking if, like generally if your intent is to playtest, um, make that clear however you're scheduling your event. You know, make sure they know it's a playtest in advance. Clear that up again at the table. Um, ask if there are people who are here because it's a playtest or if they're here just to check it out. Um, people who are intentionally playtesting a game sometimes will try and grief the system. They'll be like, they're going to look for broken parts and they're going to hit them as hard as they can to try and make the game fall apart. This is good. This is actually really helpful, but you don't want to mix those people in with the people who are just there to have a good time. Um, so set that expectation in the, in the beginning. Uh, it's going to help. Uh, one thing, too, to remember is that you know if you're, if you're the one GMing the game, um, it's possible to have a good session with a bad game and a bad session with a good game. Um, make sure that you're able to take lots of notes and make sure in, the, in retrospect you're able to look at the session and understand where the system was failing and where the group was having problems clicking. And again, this is going to be more evident and, and more easily recognized if you're already familiar with your players and a little harder to decipher with uh, people after the fact. Something else that's worth doing, if you're doing, say, like a four-hour session, uh, dedicate the last hour or 45 minutes to discussing the first three hours. So sit down and talk about, you know, how did, how did this feel? Um, did this work as, as you expected? Um, you know, get that feedback while it's still fresh. And then try and follow up, because sometimes people will, um, you know, they'll, they'll figure out feedback after the fact, after having thought about it and, uh, and you know, let it percolate a little bit uh, after the fact of the game. Um, one of the most important things that i found for playtesting, tape recorder. Record your sessions, because after you've run a four-hour grueling session of testing the system, you might miss some nuance that you couldn't notice while you were in the middle of running it. Um, and having a permanent rec record of the feedback you've received, um, so you can listen to it a couple times, is priceless. I had a session that was that Rob Donahue of Evil Hat fame was playing in, and... I listened to that recording probably about five or six times because there was so much information in there and implications hidden behind some of the comments that I had to unpack it and took a lot of effort. So a tape recorder is invaluable. Again, this is all advice for if you're the one either running or facilitating a game in person. Um, you know, that's not going to be the case most of the time. Most of it will be... For outside playtesting, once you get to that point, it's going to be people you don't know, people that are, uh, you know, you know from the internet. Again, recordings are really easy to come by. Ask people to, if they're playing on a forum, to send you the link to the forum. It's really easy. Um, you know, recording their, their Google Hangout, um, or even just giving you, like, an actual play report. Um, incentivizing this is really useful. Um, you know, for the guild, if people wanted to continue getting the beta version of, of Dungeon World, we asked them to uh, post even just a short AP, like, on their blog or on our forum, 
Uh, and that way we got a, a ton of feedback and they could continue being part of that process. They would keep getting the PDF and, uh, and get updates to the game. Um, so whether you do that, whether you like uh, allow the sort of subscription model to your, your beta test or have some other way to incentivize that behavior, um, it's, it's really good. I mean, honestly, like people will play games out of the, the goodness of their heart and out of the curiosity, but if you can bribe them to do it, they do it more often and they do it better. Um, and if you're going to do that, make that clear. Say, like, this, this is what I want to give you for playtesting. This is what we get. And give guidance. You know, whenever we um, would send out a new, uh, a new beta version of the game, we'd say, here's the, the ten things that we care about. You know, we want all your feedback, but think about this stuff when you're running the game. Um, if you're creating a game that can use sort of predetermined modules, if you've got a game that uses adventures, um, having a playtest adventure can be really good because then you're sort of flattening out the sample set. You're saying, everyone who's playing is doing this adventure, and I'm getting this feedback. Um, the Red Book version of D&D from Gen Con last year had an adventure in the back, and I think probably 80% of our, our playtest reports come from using that adventure. Um, so it's a really good way for seeing how people interpret the text. Um, Giving people playtest packages, you can see anyone who's doing the the D and D next um, playtest. You can see they it's very guided. It's very like this is what we want you to do. This is the stuff we care about, and they're kind of leaving everything else off. And that's a great way to do it. Um, one other element uh, which is of importance, which just disappeared from my brain. I'm sorry, I haven't had enough coffee today. Moving <laughs> on, playtesters, you are the worst playtester for your game. Period. It's true. Uh, I, I've played. I think I've played in Dungeon World games, maybe four or five times. Um, I've run it a bunch of times, and and obviously I'm familiar with the system. But um, the only time I've ever played it was when uh, Sage, my co-author, was running it, so that we could test a particular thing. And I'm that kind of play tester that I'm like, all right, well, I think this move is broken. I'm going to use it over and over and over until the game comes to a crashing halt. Um, so I tend to try and avoid playtesting uh, my own game just for that reason. Um, but being a good playtester, and this is where if you know other people who are developing games, um, you can take turns. Right? You can playtest their game, they'll playtest yours, and you can get an idea of uh, you know, being on both sides of the, uh, of the equation. Um, and I remember what it was. All right. Um, a key thing to try to learn is... Analyze, after the fact, how you run your game. Write that down. Put that in the book. Explain exactly... For instance, um, asking leading questions. It's a technique I use. I stole it from Lady Blackbird uh, and Dread and about a dozen other games. I have to write in the book, as a GM, ask leading questions to try to uh, get people to expand what they're doing. Uh, and describe things more and discover more backstory on issues. So I have to put that in the text so that other GMs who've never run into that advice in the past and haven't internalized that skill know what that's about. Yeah, being aware of how you run a game versus how the game is meant to be run uh, is a useful skill, for sure. Because everyone has their own style of, of GMing or playing, and that can impact the game directly. Now, if you're writing a game that's meant to be, like, the easiest, best game for you to run in the world, and who cares what everybody else thinks, that's great. You're going to love it. You'll probably never sell a single copy. Or you will, and it won't go very well. But you have to remember that the audience is broad. And again, obviously, try and get as many people to playtest as many different kinds of people to playtest it, and make it really clear. Be transparent about it. Be 
you know, if you're in the early phases, say it's written the way that I GM, and I'm looking for feedback on how other people interpret the text. Um, uh, if you want a case study, actually two case studies, uh, the Walking Eye podcast has actually done both of our games. They were playing off of the uh, Red Book uh, version of Dungeon World, which you can compare to the latest version of Dungeon World, your own copy. <laughs> and they ran Spark RPG. I actually have the post available on my website with exactly the text that they had, and you can hear exactly how they interpret the text. Uh, they were both testing for mechanics and t- testing the text and recording it with, you know, this is what I think they're talking about. Uh, this is unclear. Oh, here's a copy-paste error. Uh, that kind of thing. <laughs> Which is lovely. And So if you want to see an example of how people will test a text, dissect it. Uh, I think it's a really good example of how it comes out. And so I recommend that you take a listen. Uh, this isn't just me plugging my own game. It's actually just, I, I think it's a good example of playtesting. And they also made you know similar comments on the XP system that was in Dungeon World, which has long evolved four or five different ways since then. Mm-hmm. So you can see how feedback takes an initial product into um, a more finalized, refined form. So uh, one, one thing that... that... I want to make sure that we had a chance to, to address is um, a lot of the time, especially if you're working on your first game um, or you know, you're not used to going through the playtest and feedback process, uh, the inclination is you, know, you release a version of the game and you get a bunch of feedback about you know, something about it not working or people giving you a lot of negative feedback about something. The inclination is going to be that you want to change it right away. That you want to just take whatever it is they're suggesting and, and fix it, and now your game's not broken anymore because you know, you're appeasing the, the playtesters. Or you rip it up and throw it away because all your friends obviously yes. hate your product yeah. altogether because all they're telling you are all the horrible things that are wrong with it. Yeah, so <laughs> there's going to be, you're going to get three kinds of, of sort of playtest feedback. You're going to get people who are like, Everything's great. It's perfect. Print that's it. great. That's amazing. Yeah, I, exactly. It's the best. Game, awesome. It's the best game I ever played, and that's all they say. Then you're also going to get it sucks. It sucks. I hate you. What is this crap? <laughs> and then you're going to get useful feedback. Useful. Yeah. Um, so you know, it's it's nice to get that reaffirming feedback. Um, it's good to hear where things work. Obviously, it's still valuable. Um, but you need to follow up. You need to say, you know, why you like it. What about it do you like? Um, being willing to engage. Uh, with every playtester at least once or twice and get more information when all they want to do is, is praise or decry you, then you know, that's where you're going to get that, that useful stuff from. Um, but it's harder to interpret when people say, you know, this is, this is how it went for my group. And obviously you'll see patterns. Take every piece of feedback seriously, but don't change your game every time someone emails you about it. Um, again, the, and, and this is, you'll see like, if you're doing public playtesting, if you've got a forum, if you've got, uh, you know, Twitter, it's part of your playtest process, you're going to see cascades of feedback where one person will say something and six or seven people will, will agree with them and they'll all start talking about solutions and how they'd fix your game. Um, take it all seriously, but don't necessarily assume you have to change the game just because people are giving you that kind of feedback. Um, it's, a, it's a tricky balance between being able to ignore some of the feedback you're getting and being able to detect what's useful 
But again, if you're doing iterative testing, if you're running through multiple playtest versions of the game, you're going to see patterns, stuff will play out. Just remember that people are still human beings. They're not game testing machines. They have their own style. Their group might like or dislike certain kinds of mechanics. And again, the, the broader the, the sample set you can get, the better your data is going to be. Also, a very useful thing is when people suggest solutions, try to either determine on your own or ask them what the underlying cause is for that. Um, I'm trying to find some example. Um, we need an initiative system in here. We want this kind of initiative system. Here's what, how you should do it. It you know, is in line with what you're doing. So why do you need an initiative system? Oh, because we don't know who gets priority to speak first. Okay, so it's not that you care about who acts first. You're just trying to make sure that people don't talk over each other. That's a different problem. That's a social contract problem. And guidance, and like, there's all, there's different solutions to that kind of problem. You need to determine it. A lot of well-meaning folks will give you, here is my proposed mechanical solution. Some of those are actually just perfect that you can just take wholeheartedly. Some, but a lot of them is you need to find the underlying cause for it before you can move forward. Um, also, when you're running games. Just tell the playtesters if you're asking for mechanical solutions or not. Some designers, I'm fine with it. I'm, I'm quite comfortable receiving those. Some designers just absolutely despise it when playtesters give them, you know, well, how about if you have this rule in the game? So. Well, the trouble with that kind of feedback is that it can be useful um, for extant systems that aren't necessarily an inherent part of the core. But if you've developed a, a set of rules that all work together, having someone introduce rules that aren't built on that same framework can be, can be troublesome. Question. Uh, you mentioned getting information back from playtesters, like taking their ideas. Mm -hmm. We've always heard the rumors of, like, I was at the Venture Brothers panel, and they said, well, don't tell us anything, because if you tell us we can't write that in the story, then it won't happen. What's your take on that? You know what I mean? Like, if players invent something, oh, we can't use that mechanic now. So... It, it really depends. Yeah, it's, it's funny because there's, there's sort of two schools. Like, some people look at game design in the same way you would uh, any more traditional IP. Like, this is my game, and I own it, and you can't have any of it. Um, I'm probably a really bad example of speaking to that school because my game started as a hack of two other games, and <laughs> it's, it, we put it out as a Creative Commons license. We want people to steal shit and remix it and hack it and... You know, so for me, the solution to that problem is there is no problem. Okay. So our, our playtesters know that you know, if they're going to give us ideas, I mean, it's, it's polite to ask first, to say, like, yeah, that's a, that's a great mechanic. Like, do you mind if we use it? Or do you mind if I change a little bit and use it? Um, and most of the time, people are enthusiastic enough to get their name in the thanks and to, you know, to be a part of the, of the game. Um, but yeah, it's, like I said, it's, it's polite to ask. And establish that as part of your playtest process, right? Let people know what you're looking for, and if you don't want them to give you mechanical solutions because you're afraid that it's going to, to impact the final product, just say, like, you know what? Don't tell us. Take the Venture Brothers approach and be like, we can't, I don't want to hear it. But, you know, I appreciate the feedback anyway. And the key distinction there is disclosure non-disclosure agreement or something like with what Evil, Evil Hat does, which is a mandatory disclosure pledge. You will talk about this game as you're playtesting it. As a condition of playtesting it, be public about it. 
Um, and I find that's much better for everyone involved. Uh, you cannot, you, you cannot copyright a game. You can only copyright the presentation of a game. You can theoretically patent uh, game mechanics. Uh, yeah. Last year to the lawyer who did the yeah. RPG thing. Yeah, sort of, uh, you cannot patent an RPG. You can patent a board game. Okay. But you can't patent the concept. Not the concept, but the specific oh, mechanics in the same way as tapping a magic card is patented. So that is you would have to be absolutely paranoid, and it would not be fun, and your game would suffer if you tried to go that route. Right. I would strongly suggest not doing it. But and, it, and it's expensive, and it's just a bad idea to even try okay. that approach. The example they use is Pathfinder, right. which is basically they stole, literally, they stole a 3.5 and updated it. Right. And so Wizard of the hated them and said, well, we're going to sue you, and Pathfinder said, okay. <laughs> and Wizard of said, well, we didn't want that game. Oh yeah. The thing is, is that you can bypass all of this stuff by not being an asshole. <laughs> like none of none of this is a, none of this is a problem if you just are upfront. And you know, I think that a lot of, especially lately, a lot of people are scared that um, if they give their game away for free, they'll never make any money on it. I'll say right now, you're never going to make any money on your game anyway. So don't worry about it. Do it because you love it. Do it because you have a good idea. Um, and yeah, give it away. Tell people, you know, take this, remix it, hack it, play it, tell everyone about it because obscurity is way more harmful than piracy, like by a long shot. Um, you know, obviously, you're going to have to pay artists. Artists deserve money for their work. You're going to have to pay people to lay it out. You're going to have to pay editors. Editors are awesome. They deserve your money, too. And necessary. Next panel is at 10, by the way, uh, on editing RPGs. And that there's a cost involved in designing a game if you want it to be a, a commercial product. But we're in a place now where we have the tools available to recoup some of that cost. And nine times out of ten, and I've, I've got the example that I usually give in this is Someone uh, was, was part of our Kickstarter. They backed at the, the $5 level for the PDF. Or they gave us the 5 bucks, and they emailed uh, uh, Sage and I, and we're like, hey, I'm, I'm curious about the game. Like, can I see the beta version? And instead of making them jump through a bunch of legal hoops and sign NDAs and stuff, I was like, yeah, sure, here's the, the latest version of the game. And the next day, they upped their pledge to the $75 level. Giving stuff away gets people excited about it. It gets them to engage, and engagement is the, the lifeblood of a new game. Um, so don't be scared to give your give your stuff away. I didn't donate a dime until I played it with Kevin Weiser. Just want to give one more comment, and then I think we'll just open up the floor for questions and answers. Being an observer at a playtest of your own game is incredibly useful. Give the game text to people who haven't played it before, ideally. Sit there in the corner, watch, just take notes. Don't give any answers. Just observe what they do and how they work through it, and you'll learn a crazy amount. Keep in mind, too, though, that if the people playing, like playtesters are a bit like quantum <laughs> physics, observing them will change the playtest. <laughs> so mix it up. Don't watch every playtest of your game, but recognize that the feedback's going to be a little different. The people play differently if they know that the person who made the game is watching. Yeah. Um, they tend to try and play it right.
rather than play it the way that it's, it's written. Rather than play it the way they would play it anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, because sometimes watching the way that people interpret a game and the, the mistakes that they make um, can lead you to a better mechanical resolution than if you assume a solution. Um, sometimes people play it right even if it's written wrong. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and whenever you have a problem, your first solution should be let's remove something from my game to fix it, not let's add something to the game to fix it. Refinement, not patches. Nine times out of ten, it works better, and more importantly, it doesn't cause as many trickle-down effects. And it, Because if you put in a patch, that might break the game in four other places, and now you have to try to patch those ones? Yeah. Yeah, I'm very uncomfortable adding any new content to my game just for that reason it's worth thinking about uh, how often you iterate the game publicly you can make the changes in the back end as, as fast and as often as you want but it can be frustrating um, and anyone who's playtested the game uh, probably knows this it can be frustrating if you start a game with your group everybody makes characters you play the first hour of the session and then next week there's a new version and everybody's characters have changed so you got to start all over again um, you can fix this by only changing one piece at a time. If you have broad sweeping changes, save them uh, and, and bundle them all up into one and do it you know, monthly or whatever. Um, you can do tweaks as you go, but it can be really frustrating. And a lot of people uh, you know, will, will print uh, playtest materials, and nothing sucks worse than getting you know, a 200-page PDF, printing it, and then finding out next week that it's out of date already. Um, so keep that in mind uh, if you've got playtesters, especially if your game is a campaign kind of game that needs a longer time to sort of percolate. That means that you need to give your playtesters enough time to play, you know, six or eight or ten sessions of it. Um, so don't get too enthusiastic about releasing new versions. This stuff takes time. Um, and I say that, but we've been guilty of that in the past, and uh, I just know just from feedback. You know, sometimes you have to let people absorb what you've given them before you change it. So, questions? Uh, actually, kind of a, a comment. You're talking about um, people printing out the text. Um, Darcy Burgess, who did uh, Black Cadillacs, uh, did an ash can, and one of the things he did that was kind of neat was that whenever he would make rules tweaks, he would put out a PDF with just the changes, mm -hmm. and you printed it out, you taped it in the book, and you moved on. Yeah, yeah, totally. The the um, basic D&D approach where the game is intended to be modular and say, okay, put this between page two and three or change out page three for this. Um, it's a little more work because you have to have a consistent layout. But if you're in a position to be testing layout earlier on um, or you have a generic layout you can use, it can be really helpful. Um, something that we used too was uh, patch notes. So every time you release uh, a new version of the game, let people know here's all of the stuff that changed. Um, if you're using, uh, if you look at GitHub, it'll automate that for you. It'll show you here's in the text literally all the stuff that you changed between this version and this version, um, and it stores version control too. So you can go back into the history and see where those things changed. So having that available both in the PDF you're sending out to everybody and available online somewhere. So if you have a, like a portal for your playtesters where you keep that material, leaving patch notes super useful. Saves people having to go through the book and look for all of the changes themselves. Uh, GitHub. It's uh, yeah, it's just an open. It's like a software development tool. But if you're writing a game in text, you're you're good to go. Uh, all right. Um, earlier you mentioned like playtesting tone based on GM style. What if it's a GMless game? 
it's going to be different every time people play it. And uh, GMless games and, and GM games, they're not really that different in, in a playtest because different groups will have a tone. It just means that people contribute um, sort of more equally to that tone. Um, so keeping that in mind in the same, the same structure, just sort of spreading that authority around and knowing that everybody's going to bring something different to the table. So you aren't observing the GM skills, you're observing every player's skills and what you're telling each of them to do. Um, in a way, the text of a GMless game has to be clearer than one because a GM can interpret, um, but if you have five or six people all trying to interpret unclear text, you run into a lot more problems. So you have to think of the, the book, and, and this is a problem for writing RPGs in general, is that they have to be both instructive and a reference material, which can be incredibly different uh, than a book that's just purely for teaching it um, or purely for referring to. Um, so the, the text in a GMless game has to be uh, as, as clear, I mean this is true of any game, it has to be as clear as possible, but you have to keep in mind that there's five people interpreting instead of one passing it along to their group. Perfect. Uh, I think there's one or two questions. Okay. Um, I just wanted to put this out to everybody. I'm here because I'm working on a game, and I'd be interested if other people are working on a game and want to contact me. Um, because I found on G Plus that I've actually had a lot of help from other people trying to play test their games. So, yep. I mean, if you want to catch me on the way out or whatever, that'd be great. And great now. Likewise. Uh, and uh, are there any other pressing questions? I think we're good. Okay, we're good. All right. Thank you all. Um, Thanks for coming.